Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. When I put that helmet on and strapped it on, tightened the seat belts, I was as good as there was out there. And Mm -hmm. whether I was or whether I wasn't, I felt felt like that. When I got home, drove into clear, and then I got the news that David crashed, and, uh, you know, I, I was just like, oh, my God. Jimmy was going in there behind my back and telling the owner, hey, I can outdrive Hutch Strickland. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, brother man, <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> you might want to sit down for this one. I am continually amazed at the reaction that we receive 
from our listeners, but this one has left me darn near in shock. I, huh. Steve, I first started noticing Christopher W. Herbert liking and commenting on our Twitter feed a few weeks ago. And then I noticed his handle at the wow poet NZ with a small flag next to it. Well, finally I put two and two together and I realized that Christopher actually lives in New Zealand and he listens to the scene vault podcast. You are kidding me. He's from (laughs) New Zealand and he listens to NASCAR. Well, I know he listens to the scene vault podcast. Well, that's good enough for me. (laughs) You know what this means? Don't you? We have gone international. Yes, we have. Christopher lives in the Taranaki region of New Zealand on the west coast of the North Island near a city called New Plymouth. And, man, I've got to tell you, he has sent me some beautiful, and I mean beautiful, breathtaking photographs of the Mount Taranaki volcano And of course I had to find out the hows and the whys of his interest in NASCAR. And we wound up in contact via direct message on Twitter and then on Facebook. And according to Christopher, he once lived and breathed motorsports that was more familiar to the crowd down under. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about things like the Bathurst 1000 and V8 supercars. But then in about 2011, he started getting intrigued by NASCAR. And that's one part of Christopher's story. And here's the other. He is also a lyricist, a songwriter, and a poet. And he has written several pieces about NASCAR. This story gets more amazing the further we go into it. Good night. One thing led to another. And since on this episode, Hutch Strickland talks about losing his good friend, Davey Allison, I asked Christopher if he could record himself reading his ballad, Legend of the 28. And Steve, he agreed. So here is Christopher W. Herbert, direct from New Zealand, reading his ballad, Legend of the 28. Hero of the 28. As written 2nd of August, 2012 and spoken by Christopher W. Herbert of New Zealand. He will always be a hero, a hero to win a race. And with all the love he had to give, and the sorrow of a widow, and his smile on his children's face. The man they called Davy, the man in the 28, he will always be a hero, a hero of time. He will always be the man who made Dale Lunard cry on a July day at Pocono in memory of when Davy did die. He will always be a hero, one of those with true faith, hero to those who knew him in time. Hero of the 28, one of a special kind, he will always be a hero, a hero of time. Allison, Kawiki, Earnhardt and more. Everyone was a life. What was life living for? He will always be a hero. One of those with true faith. Hero to those who knew him in time. Adam Petty. 
Kenny Irwin Jr. and that old concrete wall. Oh, how we do remember those who listened to the bells when the bells did call. The man of the 28, he will always be a hero. He will always be the man who made Dale Hunard cry. He will always be a hero, a hero of time. Now, Steve, one thing is very obvious about that clip. I thought it was very, very important for Christopher to read it and not me or you because us reading it and him reading it are two entirely different things. (laughs) You made a wise decision there. I'll tell you the truth about that. Steve, isn't that something? That's great. Great. It's an amazing story. It really is. So yes, we have a listener in New Zealand. I just can't get over that, man. And he's also a poet on top of everything else. He's a wow poet. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely is this week. I can tell you that. Christopher, I know you're listening. In the second installment of our interview with Hutt Strickland, Hutt talks about hanging out with team owner Junior Johnson and one of Junior's best friends, the one and only Miller Dashley. Good old Miller. Here is one for our listeners to really, really think about and let it lean on them a little bit. Hutt had agreed to go with Davy Allison to the test at Talladega in his helicopter, but had to back out when he developed a very, very bad case of food poisoning in New Hampshire. And we know what ultimately happened on that helicopter flight and for Hutch Strickland to have agreed to go only to back out at the last minute. Yeah. That was pretty deep, pretty powerful moment there. Well, it's called fate Rick and fate stepped in here because food poisoning is no laughing matter whatsoever. But you could say that food poisoning in this case may have saved Hutch's life. It definitely saved Hutt's life. Finally, Steve, Hutt tells us what he really thinks about Jimmy Spencer. (laughs) This is going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I was ready for that, much less our listeners. (laughs) Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the April 21st, 1994 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That issue featured coverage of Terry Labonte's first win with Hendrick Motorsports, which came at North Wilkesboro. And speaking of Jimmy Spencer, that race at North Wilkesboro also featured a pretty infamous clash between Jimmy and Ken Schrader. Well, they didn't call him Mr. Excitement for nothing, you know. Not only was he uh, exciting on the track, he was uh, sometimes exciting off of it as well. Deb Williams had a column in this issue where she outlined some of the hijinks that had gone on at driver's meetings and at the racetrack. Right. I've been to some of those, and I tell you, they can get somewhat uh, hilarious. There was one driver's meeting, I think it was at Richmond, where somebody opened up a bottle of uh, stink perfume, (laughs) (laughs) and the smell of rotten eggs just permeated the place. This issue also carried features on Chuck Bound. Bill Elliott's Racing Museum in Dawsonville, that year's very large Rookie of the Year class in the Bush Series. And finally, there was a feature on teacher 
Diane Finn, who had a reading program based around NASCAR in her classroom. That sounds like a very good idea, and I look forward to hearing how she pulled that off. Steve, this week we have increased Patreon support from Philip Pegler and CJ Allbox. So CJ and Philip, you were already a part of the family. You were already helping us out. And I think it's pretty special, Steve, that they chose to up their support because of what we're doing here on the podcast. Well, I think it's pretty special too, Rick, and I sure do appreciate them doing that. So if you can support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you'd like to support us on Patreon on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. When you were racing around Alabama and you mentioned that you won a lot and you were not liked because you were winning so much Mm and Pam sticking her finger in the window (laughs) of the van and yelling at you for beating Davey and all that. Then you go to Winston Cup. How difficult was it to manage your expectations and not become too spun out by not immediately winning? Uh, Very tough. That's probably the hardest thing – really for anybody to go from winning and then, you know, we can't win at all, basically. Um, you know, it was a competitive sport. I heard Dick Trickle say this many years ago, uh, you know, when he got there, hey, he said, everybody here is a champion from something, you know, and you don't win championships without being being good. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, that's, that's a good analogy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but it's um you know it is very tough um uh you know uh you know and and your wins aren't every weekend you know like they were or two or three you know and it it was it was very tough i mean it beats you up emotionally you know and uh you just have to you know keep plugging along somehow some way you know and not give up and just keep your eye on the prize and that was that was basically what i tried to do you know the whole time I always had a lot of a lot of inner confidence, um, uh, you know, n- not where people could see it, but I always knew, you know, I always felt when I put that helmet on and strapped it on, tightened the seat belts, I was as good as there was out there. And mm-hmm. whether I was or whether I wasn't, I yeah, felt that yeah. felt like that, yeah. you know. And I felt like any driver, you know, that that has any kind of success, that's how they have to feel. And and um, but that's it. So you leave Bobby's near the end of the 92 season and you've got the deal to drive for junior in 1993 but in the 1992 hooters 500 in atlanta you're driving for larry hedrick which i would assume Mm -hmm. that's a one or two race deal or whatever Mm -hmm. and just the second lap of the race you get caught up in a big accident that left you pretty banged up Mm -hmm. and i think you were even supposed to test the next day what all happened um when they dropped the green flag, uh, I think Brett Bodine was on a pole, and well, Rick Mast was Rick on Ma- the pole, Rick, okay. and Brett was Brett, outside. Okay, yeah. all right, yep, that's right. Yeah, and somehow or another, I think uh, was Earnhardt involved yeah. in getting yeah. Earnhardt, tar- Earnhardt got into Brett. Brett. Okay, yeah. that's what yeah. happened. Yeah, and then uh, and then when they spun, some Brett or somebody spun, they come down, you know, up 
from the wall down the bottom, and I was at the bottom and drove right into them. You know, you run 170 miles an hour or whatever, you know, you just couldn't miss him. But, uh, you know, that was highly disappointing because I felt like we had a really good race car that day. Uh, you know, I was wanting to see. That was actually Larry Hedrick's first time with a Ford. And, uh, you know, we had, um, you know, uh, I, I was looking forward to getting a run a race with Harry Hyde. He was he was crew chiefing. Um, and uh, and, I, and I'm pretty sure Jake Alec, Jake uh, Elder was there too, uh, you know, from time to time. I don't I don't think he was crew chief, but he was helping some. So uh, I was looking forward to getting you know work with some basically some experienced guys there that would be, would have been pretty fun, you know. You mentioned the fact that you had talked to the 43 team about mm-hmm. replacing Richard, and of course you got the you took the deal with Junior Johnson. Were you offered the 43 car, or were you just maybe in the mix? Uh, I don't know really how far. Okay. Uh, right. You know, yeah. I, I feel pretty confident. I, you know, I had Richard's phone number. I I talked to him, you know, you know, five or six times, you know, um, you know, on the telephone. Um, you know, everything was – I feel like, you know, it, it was it, – everything – I yeah, had I had yeah, a yeah. you know probably eighty percent chance I feel like at that time, um, it, you know it, it just uh, you know because I mean we had done a lot of stuff together. He and I had you know you know back in Pontiac days and okay. different autograph sessions, things yeah. like that, and got to know each other. Uh, loved him to death, you know, and 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 I thought that was you know that would have been, you know, an, uh, an extremely good marriage there, uh, you know, but uh, it just didn't work out. I don't know. Um, you know, when, when, when the McDonald's deal come about with Junior, it just, everything happened so fast that, you know, it, it was, you know, I like McDonald's, McDonald's like me, and, and, and you know, Junior the same way with everybody, and it was just, yeah, I, you know, I thought it was just, you know, a dream come true. You got off to a pretty decent start at Daytona <clears throat> in the 93, Daytona mm-hmm. 500, and you finished fourth. And I think it's so cool. We're sitting here talking, and I can look up, and the side off that car is, <laughs> is hanging right yep. above you. Yep. Um, what do you remember about that day? Uh, I remember we had a really good race car, uh, handled good. Um, didn't have the fastest race car, but I think we had a we had a good race car that you know you could run wide open, didn't have to lift out of the throttle. Um, it was, um, you know, just a good handling car. Um, you know, come down the end of the race, uh, we was leading with about 20 to go, and um, I don't know, probably 16, 15, 16 laps, Earnhardt, uh, somebody hooked up with Earnhardt and come by me, and, uh, and then, you know, come down the end of the race, we all fanned out, and, you know, I could see the car at one. He was right in front of me, and, you know, we was all fanned out. Top five cars was, you know, got finished fifth. Could have won just as easy as guy yeah. one could have finished fifth. But um, you know, it, it was a great day. Um, you know, by far the best race we had all year. Um, you know, but it, it just, um, you know, it, it just it, things didn't go that good after that. You know, what was it like driving for Junior at that point in his career? Um. Junior was probably the most laid back car owner, just laid back. Um, uh, you know, he would he would come and uh, give his two cents worth at Martinsville and you know North Wilkesboro or somewhere like that. But he wouldn't, 
Um, you know, and, and he and, and and by right he had all right to come at any time, but uh, you know he knew those places and uh, had a lot of success with them. And uh, but um, he he was, um, uh, you know, I'd love you know every time I'd go up there, I'd always get him and we'd you know go over to his friends Miller Ashley's place and go eat with them and. <laughs> Uh, you know, it was always a <laughs> Miller Ashley. Yes, sir. <laughs> but it was a it was a lot of good times. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now I have to ask. You went and ate with Miller Ashley at his place. Where was that? That was at a salvage yard. Okay. Called Twenty One Motors. I know exactly where. Yeah. Yep. I yep. live like two miles from yep. there. Yep. 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 Okay. Yep. I used to go there, uh, and it's so ironic, man, because. Miller's, 21 Motors. Yes, sir. His junkyard <laughs> reminded me so much of my my dad's junkyard. Yeah, lot, yeah, layout yeah, a lot like yeah. like his was. Uh had had a had a stove in the middle where they cooked pinto beans and stuff and uh man, I tell you what, we used to go there sometimes and hear some great stories and and uh and uh you know and, and sometimes I mean there'd be like, you know, I'd look around and be like Junior and then there'd be Ralph Seagraves and then there'd be you know, like Millard, and I mean, I'd be like, yeah. man, I'm starstruck, you know, and and yeah. it just, it was just, you know, it was so awesome, you know, and all the stories they, you know, they'd sit there and tell, and uh, and then of course they'd get into some of that, that that tune up juice and <laughs> <laughs> that product. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, obviously I know Millard, and the best way to describe Millard is that. You said that he was one of Junior's friends. Mm-hmm. He was also, let's just say, he was also one of Junior's business associates <laughs> way back in the day. <laughs> he probably was. Well, ain't that, no probably. No, there ain't no probably to no, it. No, no, you're right about that. But <laughs> I hate to go from that to this question, but July 12th, 1993, David gets in his helicopter with Red, mm-hmm. and he flies over to Talladega. Mm-hmm. Um how difficult were those next few days and weeks for you and the family? And uh, extremely, um, you know, we, we 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 had a lot of stuff hit us. Uh, Pam and, and myself, our family, had us. You know, with Davy's deal, uh, you know, we lost uh, a real close friend of mine down in Clear. A friend I grew up, close friend of mine, Mike Crawford, lost him along at the same time. Uh, you know, we, I, you know, and within. Uh, Two or three weeks there, I lost, I lost my racetrack best friend, then I lost my best friend, you know, from Calera, and uh, it was, um, it was a pretty devastating time. It really was, um, you know, the, the helicopter accident. Going back to that a little bit, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but um, I'd flew to Loudon with Davy uh, uh, up there, and and on Saturday, um, Davy had told me, he said, um, you know, we, or actually, yeah, well, Saturday during race, he's uh, not during the race, while I was at the racetrack, David said, hey, he said, uh, David Bonnet's going to be testing Talladega Monday. I said, you want us to take the helicopter and go up there? I said, yeah, man, that sounds good. That sounds good. So he and I had planned on doing that. So so anyway, we um, we go out to eat Saturday night in Loudoun, and me and, and the whole uh, McDonald's crew, we go to some place there, and we all order uh, – food and we all basically eat the same thing and we had the absolute worst case of food poison that you could possibly imagine all, every one of us got sick i mean and uh and there was no alcohol involved or anything yeah, i mean yeah. it was just you know 
And so anyway, we um, come Sunday morning, we're all in the uh, infirmary there, you know, getting IVs in our arms and getting, you know, um, you know, just still sick as a dog. And anyway, um, I run 20 laps in the race and um, have to get out of the car and let Jeff Burton get in the car for me and uh, drive it the rest of the day because he blew up early. But um, they carried me back to the hospital because I had no, you know, I was like a limp dish rag, basically. And uh, so I spent the night in the hospital Sunday night. And um, You actually and, spent the night? Yeah, I spent the night. Really? Yeah, I had to spend wow. the night in the hospital Sunday night. Uh, and then uh, Monday, Monday, I guess about lunchtime, I, I got home, flew, flew home. And uh, then when I got home, drove into clear, and then I got the news that Davey had crashed. And, uh, you know, I, I was just like, oh, my God. You know, it was just, you know, and, and you know, Pam knew, you know, she said, man, this, you know, you know, the good Lord works in mysterious ways. And, uh, wow. you know, it was, it was a bad deal. I mean, it, you know, then we went to the hospital, you know, later on that day, and uh, we knew then. We, we didn't really get to see him or anything, but, you know, some of the close family that went in there did and uh, it, we knew that it, you know he wasn't gonna make it. You know, you know, like I said, the way it turned out, it was a, it was a, you know, somewhat of a blessing for Hut Strickland, but then it was a, yeah. you know, it was devastating for our whole family. I, I don't know an appropriate way to ask this, but is that something that you had to deal with? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Every every. Um, I mean, every every race, um, you, you know, I'd go to uh, Davy and I. You know, we, we would talk setups and you know different things all all the time. And you know, uh, I mean, basically, you know, what's weird is you know from the time I started racing um, till I bought a Dillon car in nineteen eighty three eighty four, I, I I had an Allison car, Bobby Allison. You know, one one that they built down there, and a guy named Johnny Day worked for them, built it, and uh, and we always compared notes on our Allison car, and uh, we and um, anyway, so we we had a great relationship, you know, from that from early on, and then then uh, when we'd go to the races, you know, we always compared notes and different things, you know, uh, hey, this worked for me, and you know, and man, that that guy helped us so much, you know, when I drove for Bobby and different things, um, you know, just you know, stuff they'd learn. And, and I, and I like to think we helped them too. Cause we would, we would definitely share. It was like an open book thing with he and I both, you know, and it was just a great re- relationship. You were at the 27 car through the end of 93. And then you moved over to the 23 with Travis Carter and the smoking <clears throat> Joe's deal in 94. Was there any kind of connection between the two teams or were they totally separate deals? Well, when we when we started the Smoking Joe's team, uh, uh, basically it was a lot of hand me down stuff from from the twenty seven car uh, because it, that team kind kind of got started at the last minute, uh, uh, but it was basically the same thing you know as the twenty seven car stuff. Um, you know we built uh, I think our first uh, brand new car we had was was in Indianapolis. You know, we run, and uh, uh, I don't remember what happened in the race, but, you know, we, we qualified, you know, top 20 out of probably 100 cars there. Yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah. that was big field of cars. Um, but, um, you know, we just, uh, you know, that team and I, you know, great people. 
uh, man, I just, you know, for some reason or other, we, you know, uh, you know, had, we just couldn't seem to get, put all the pieces together with that. I don't yeah. know why, yeah. you know, um, you know, once we, once we, um, you know, and Travis Carter, Paul Travis and, and Pete Wright, you know, they were pulling their hair out and, 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 and I was pulling my hair out and <laughs> it yeah, was just, yeah. you know, we just couldn't ever seem to get going, you know? So I'm, I'm just going to ask Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> was all that just a coincidence or was there maybe something actually going on between the two of you where you kept having a ride and he kept coming in and replacing you? I mean, it, it happened several times. Well, just because it happened in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, how do I say this nicely without just saying it? And I'm not going to say it nicely. I'm just going to say it. Basically, um, you know, Jimmy was going in there behind my back and, you know, telling the owner, hey, I can I can outdrive Hutch Strickland. I, you know, put me in there. I can do better. I can do this. I can do that. Um, you know, and, and you know, because, I, I, you know, I, I heard everything, you know, People would tell me everything <laughs> that yeah, he said, yeah, you know, and that's yeah. fine. Uh, but but I would never do that with anybody else. You know, I would never um, – that's just, you know, and, and I wasn't going in there trying to defend myself or anything like that because, you know, it's useless. If somebody's going to believe that, let them go have at it. You know, every time he's come along behind anything that I did, you know, um, you know, he, I mean – he done worse than I did in Rod Osterland. He done worse than I did in McDonald's car. Other than the fact he, he, um, you know, they won two races, you know, restrictor plate races, which you know still be questionable were they right or were they wrong. But you know that's yeah. uh, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, uh, but 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 still we won two races and they was about three or four positions behind me in points where we where we finished that the year before. So you take those two wins out, you know, yeah, he's even worse. Right. You know, yeah. but but still. Um, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, the deal come along with Travis and you know, it's just a combination, you know, and then you got Bobby's car, just different things. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't really know what, you know, what went on, you know, Bobby's deal. I stepped out of it. He didn't root me out of there. Uh, you know, uh, you know, but you know, the junior thing and then Travis thing and, you know, just, it just, you know, it just, you know, somewhat freak maybe, but, but, you know. I think there was more to it. Is it something that you actually talked to him about, or Spencer? Yeah, no, okay. no, no. I, I I never even talked to Spencer. Uh, you know, I, I I I pretty much hated him as a driver. You know, <laughs> yeah. And 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 uh, you know, it's ironic. He'll come in over there where I work now. Uh, you know, um, and he'll hang out an hour, and we'll sit there and talk like old friends. You know. Today he to, will. Yeah, he will today. Really? Yeah, sure will. Okay. You know, uh, and I don't hold anything against him. You right. know, uh, you know, did, you know, uh, but but you know, drivers just you know, some drivers just hate other drivers. <laughs> you know, and 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 yeah. you know, I, I didn't hate him personally. I just I didn't right. like his driving style. I, you know, I wasn't raised that way. You know, I, the, the racers I grew up with in Alabama. You know, racing with Bobby and Donnie and Red Farmer and. You know, uh, Dave Mater and different places, different people like that. Uh, you drive that way, they'll park you. You know, and uh, it, you know the way he drives. Uh, and and I grew up with, you know, I'd take my car home every Friday and Saturday night, and 
very seldom would I even have a wheel mark on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and that's how they they taught me to race, and that's how they all raced. And um, you, you know, and you can see it a lot from from the from the guys that grew up in ASA racing. You know, the Dick Trickles, the Mark Martins, the Rusty Wallaces, and Kawickies, and play, people like that. That's the way they race. They don't run into each other and knock each other out of the way. And and I guess Spencer just come along in the days with modifieds where that's what you did, and you know, and that's how they drove, and that's fine. You know. You did start off 1995 on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. How hard was that? Um, very hard. Um, you know, it. Um, you know, I, I honestly thought I'd reached a point there. I didn't think I was going to get another shot. Yeah. I really didn't. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, it um, uh, you know, things just, you know, had good sponsorship, but, you know, with, with, with McDonald's and had good sponsorship with, with the Smoking Joe's car and, you know, and nothing happened, you know, and, and it just, uh, but, uh, you know, when I got a call from, from uh, Kenny Bernstein to uh, want me to come see if I could help, you know, work, work with uh, Steve Kinzer, um, you know, I was like, well, heck, I ain't doing nothing else. Let's go to it, you know. And so, you know, we would go test the Quaker State car uh, with, with Steve Kinzer. And, okay. Um, we'd take two cars to the track. I'd get in one, he'd get in the other. We'd go to different racetracks, and um, I'd let him follow me. Then I'd follow him. I'd I'd be on the radio telling him, "Hey, you know, widen your mar- widen your arc out, getting in the corner, or you know, or easy on the throttle off the corner, different things like that." You know, and just and um, you know, tried to uh, you know talk to him like I would want to be talked to, you know. And uh, but um, you know, it's it just one of the things that he he had done what he had done for so long. Um, you know, and he had developed a lot of habits that I think, um, you know, would have been very hard to, to break, uh, especially on, you know, racetracks where it takes finesse or things like that. Um, you know, which in the cup car is about what it does take. I mean, at the time, what they got now, I don't know about, but, (laughs) but but back then you had to have a lot of finesse and, um, you know, if you didn't, your stuff wouldn't last. It could evidently be pretty interesting working with Kenny Bernstein. What was your relationship like with Kenny? I'll tell you what. He's one of the best guys I ever drove for. No kidding. I, okay. I, and I'll tell you right now, I loved him to death. Um, he was he was so cut and dry. You, you, you never, you always knew right where you stood with him <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and he would say what was on his mind. And, and, and I was a, you know, I was always a no BS guy. I'd tell him. You know, just as it was, you know. Uh, you know, if I screwed up, I say, I screwed up, you know. And, you know, or, you know, engine wasn't no good today or, you know, or we just couldn't get a bite off the corner for whatever reason. And, and you know, and he was okay with that. I mean, he, but he, it was, you know, and Bernstein was a lot like Bobby. You know, it was always cool to talk to Bobby because Bobby was like being a racer, you know, the, the, the um, you know, they were just, you know, you could speak the same language, you know, and they, and they both understood, you know, and that was always pretty cool. Now, did you ever get to try out one of his cars? No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't well, think I was worth a to. shot. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I did go to one of these drag races one time right before. Uh, oh wow! Uh, yeah. yeah, they they were running Rockingham, and uh, that was pretty awesome. I tell you, that's the first drag race I'd ever went to. No kidding. And man, wow. watch that thing take off! Oh my God, I didn't know. I thought we was having an earthquake, or, <laughs> and it was ungodly loud. Wow! But, but they yeah. put me down on the start line. Man, that thing! I, I didn't know whether to run or stand still or or just let the earth shake my heart out. <laughs> Hutt talked last week about how successful he had been on the short tracks in and around his home state of Alabama. He talked about how his future wife, Pam, didn't like him at first because he had been beating Davey. And he talked about how he had been hated because he had (laughs) been winning so much. But then when he gets to Winston Cup, those kinds of results don't come nearly as easily. And even a top 10 finish is as hard fought as a win had been on some short track somewhere. Steve, not just for Hutt, but for any driver who's had any kind of success at a grassroots level, how difficult is it for them to manage those kinds of expectations when they get to the ultimate NASCAR level, the Cup Series? What they have to realize, and I'm sure Hutt realized it, it's a whole new environment and a whole new form of competition. If you're in the top circuit, like Winston Cup was back then, you're going against guys that have been there for quite a while, have a lot of experience, and Lord knows they got the talent. So you are now in a new pool. You're a small fish in a big pool, and you have to adapt to that. And the good ones usually do. But over the years, I think we have seen that many of the superstars of NASCAR today, and even the legendary drivers, had a period of time where they had to adapt to a new environment and learn how to succeed in it. Well, I think that even the most successful drivers have to accept that winning every single week just isn't possible, especially at such an elite level. I think the best drivers are able to learn from that and move forward and tell themselves, hey, you know, we'll just have to dig in and get after them next week rather than panicking and going, oh my gosh, <laughs> what's wrong? We're never going to win again. Well, that's the learning I was talking about. You have to adapt your situation. And if you don't adapt your situation and panic and think you're never going to win again, well, you are not ever going to win it. You know, you have to adapt and adjust. I think at every level, even at the most humble of weekly short tracks, racers have to understand they're racing against two things. Number one, they're racing against talent. And also, number two, they're also racing against money. (laughs) And so every single step of the way up the ladder, I think that gets more and more pronounced and more and more of an issue. So you're racing money, you're racing talent. And sometimes I think that order gets mixed around a little bit. Sometimes you're racing more money than you are talent, of course. So that's true. Also. I wish you could have been there for this interview because when Hutt mentioned 21 Motors, Junior Johnson, and Junior's buddy Millard Ashley, my entire face lit up because I know exactly where 21 Motors is. You knew Millard Ashley. For those who never had the experience of meeting Millard, who was he? Well, Millard was your basic good old country boy. 
He wore those covered overall things, whatever you call them. Bibbed overalls. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And he was quite the businessman and entrepreneur, shall we say. He had uh, many things going for him, but what he had most going for him, uh, you could drink it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, hanging around with Gene, you had a, you had a pretty good idea uh, of what Miller really did up there <laughs> in your country. Have you ever visited 21 Motors? One time. Did you really? It wasn't there very long, but I, I saw it. <laughs> well, essentially what it is, it's a great big old junkyard. It is between our house and Jeannie's mom's house. And so I'm thinking it's maybe, I've never measured it, but it's, I think it's five miles to Jeannie's mom's house. So I'm thinking it's maybe three and a half, somewhere in there to 21 Motors. It's just a big old junkyard and junior and Millard and Millard's son, Ted would have these huge community cookouts there at the junkyard and everybody showed up and junior and Millard and Ted, they would hold court. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Junior was famous for his cookouts. As you well know, he had a breakfast every morning. Up at his shops on his property up there in uh, Wilkes County, where he lived. So he had a good hand in getting people fed. Well, let's just get one thing straight. Uh-huh. The breakfast that I went to was at his shop in Yakin County. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. So there's a difference between Yakin County and Wilkes County, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, my geography is off. <laughs> Steve. To move from that to the story that Hutt told about New Hampshire and the day that his friend Davy died, it honestly left me with my mouth kind of gaped open as Hutt was telling that. Hutt flew to New Hampshire with Davy, and on Saturday, Davy told Hutt that he was going to go see David Bonnet test at Talladega on Monday and asked if he wanted to come along. And Hutt, he didn't even hesitate before saying yes, but the night before the race, Hutt goes to dinner with his crew and the whole team basically winds up with really bad food poisoning. Hutt starts the car, but turns it over to Jeff Burton, who had fallen out of the very first race of his Winston Cup career earlier that day with a blown engine. And Hutt turns the car over to Jeff on lap 219. And Hutt actually spent the night in the hospital. He flew back to Alabama on Monday, got home, and heard that Davy had crashed his helicopter. Well, you can just imagine how Hutt must have felt then. I know he was not feeling good from that food poisoning. And to hear this news, I mean, that's got to be very, very disheartening. Not only did Hutt lose Davy, he had also lost his best friend in Calera, his hometown of Calera, Alabama, Mike Crawford, at about the same time. And I cannot imagine what that must have been like for Hutt. He, I'm sure that he was thankful that he wasn't on board. But at the same time, if it had been me, obviously I would have been thankful that I wasn't on board the helicopter. But at the same time, knowing that I would have, had it not been for that Saturday night dinner in New Hampshire. 
I'm thinking in that situation, Hutt was very thankful that he did not go back with Davy and be a part of what happened. I know he's feeling bad from being sick and everything, but sometimes you say to yourself, well, this was a bad experience up there in New Hampshire, but it could have been so much worse. Hutt left the 27 car, the Junior Johnson McDonald's car, at the end of the 1993 season, and he was replaced by Jimmy Spencer. He went to the 23 team that was owned by Travis Carter. He stays for a year and was replaced by Jimmy Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Steve, that is four times in his career that Hutt Strickland was replaced by Jimmy Spencer. He was replaced at Rod Osterlin, Bobby Allison, Junior Johnson, and Travis Carter. Now, Bobby Allison's team, Hutt left by his choice. The other three, eh, he was replaced by Jimmy Spencer. Yeah. And I asked Hutt about Jimmy, and he did not mince words at all. He kind of laughed and said that just because it happened in 1989, 1990, 91, 92, 93, didn't mean that there was anything going on. But then he thought about it for a second. He said, how do I put this nicely? And then he goes, forget that. I ain't going to say it nicely. I'm just going to say it. And he basically claimed that Jimmy would go to Hutt's team owners and tell him that he could do a better job than Hutt. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened behind closed doors, and I'm sure you don't either. But Hutt did go so far as to say, again, in no uncertain terms, that he hated Jimmy Spencer (laughs) as a driver. (laughs) Didn't hate him personally because you try not to hate anybody, but that just wasn't the way that Hutt had been brought up. He'd take his car back to the shop after a late model race somewhere, and a good many times it didn't have so much as a tire rub anywhere on the car. Jimmy had a very exciting driving style, shall we say. And as for going to team owners and saying that he could do a better job than Hutt, no, I don't know if he really did that or not. But I can tell you this, Rick, it has been done in the past okay it has been done where a driver has gone up and talked to a team owner says i can do a better job now again don't pin this on me i don't know if jimmy did that or not i just know it's been done well something that hut did point out if you look at the record at the 57 car the rod osterlin car and the 12 car and the 27 car and the 23 car with the exception of the two wins that Jimmy got at Talladega and Daytona in 1994, the results were fairly similar, if not tilted one way or the other, just a little bit, sometimes in Hutt's favor, sometimes in Jimmy's. So listeners, you can make of that what you want to, if you're a Jimmy Spencer fan, and Larry Spencer the third, I know you're out there listening. I'm not taking up for Hut <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Listeners, you can make your own decision on who was right, who was wrong, and what the results ultimately turned out to be. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. 
I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter SCENE at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. I was having some trouble deciding on an issue of Winston Cup saying that we could dig into for this segment. So I just opened it up on Twitter and I asked for basically any kind of random race between 1993 and 1994 that anybody could think of. And uh, Steve, we had a million suggestions. (laughs) And so then I had even more trouble trying to sort through all the ones that were suggested but then I came across this tweet from Michael Schuler at DLM FanView on Twitter, and he wrote, pick any of the Wilkesboro races in that time period. It's a hot topic right now. Why not add gasoline on the fire? So who, <laughs> us, cause trouble? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Pour gas on the fire? Never. Hey, <laughs> oh, hey, my friend. Well, then Michael Lingenfelter responded to Michael Schuler's tweet and added, agreed. If you have to pick one, maybe Terry Labonte's return to Victory Lane, his first win for Hendrick Motorsports. What really put this thread over the top? I looked at Michael Schuler's profile, and according to that, he is an aquatic biologist. A what? Aquatic <laughs> biologist? Aquatic (laughs) biologist. And I wasn't too sure about that because according to that same profile, Michael lives in Iowa. And I would have thought that an aquatic biologist would live near, I don't know, water, (laughs) 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 like an ocean or something. So I sent Michael Schuler a direct message on Twitter, and it turns out that he was educated as a fisheries biologist. And he did that early in his career, and now he is more generalized and works in water quality monitoring and environmental health. So, Steve, we have an aquatic biologist listening to our podcast. We've had an astronaut on our podcast. We've got a listener in New Zealand. (laughs) Aren't we just something? Oh, I'm telling you, let's just say our listeners and our co-hosts make quite an eclectic bunch, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Eclectic. That's a good word for it there, bud. (laughs) With all that being said, a North Wilkesboro issue. Terry Labonte went in the spring race at North Wilkesboro, his first win with Hendrick Motorsports. We are going to go back to the April 21st, 1994 issue of Winston Cup scene. And Steve, you and I talked to Terry Labonte at your house way back in episode 29 about the years between when he left Junior Johnson and when he joined Hendrick Motorsports. Well, you moved along from there. I think Richard Jackson is yep. back to Billy yep. for a yep. couple more mm-hmm. years. And not the greatest period no, of time. No, that was that was not the best best deal. We drove for Richard Jackson that one year and we went to Daytona. We finished second in the 500. I thought... 
man, I think I might like this team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we ended up had a, a couple of, was some pretty good runs, you know, at times, and uh, weren't, weren't real consistent. Not as consistent as I was used to being. You yeah. Know? And, uh, and so then I had a chance to go back with Billy, and Billy's team manager had been talking to me, and, and they had gotten uh, some pretty good sponsorship, but, you know. And, so anyway, I went back to them after the next year in 91. And we had a lot of the same people back, you know. We just kind of couldn't ever get it where we needed to be. Hmm. And uh, just weren't, weren't as competitive as we should have been. And uh, and about that same time, the technology was starting to change in the sport, you know. And, and uh, we were just behind. And and it was hard to get – we had, a, you know, we had a few good runs. We had some good runs, but uh, – had a shot at winning a couple of races, but you know, I tell you what, to, to win races, you got to you got to have more than one shot at it or two right. shots at it. You know, you got to be consistent and run good a lot, and and uh, so we just kind of couldn't ever really get it where we needed to be, and, and uh, so it was a little disappointing, you know, that we didn't because uh, I really felt like you know I felt like our engines were good, you know, I felt like our cars were going to be good, and, right. uh, and we got in there and. Uh, we just kind of weren't, you know, weren't really where we needed to be. And then about that same time, a lot of the teams were kind of new teams were coming on. We're really outspending us, you know, money wise. And so in, in racing, if, if you don't have a, if you're not on the top and the sponsorship side of things, right. that, that buys a lot of, a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of speed, you know. Did you have any doubts about your career during this point? Oh yeah. I said, man, I don't know about this deal, you know? Uh-huh. So, uh, I wasn't sure exactly uh, what was uh, what was you know what was down the road. I had no idea, you know, and uh, and I just knew that right there we weren't gonna just it just I needed to do something else. It just we just weren't getting to where we needed to be, and and uh, the guys at Hendrick had been talking to me about coming down there, and I thought, you know, I don't know. Uh, that looks like a high pressure deal to me, you know, just looking at it from the outside. And they said, "No, it's not, man. It's, it's, it's you won't believe it. It's just it's really cool and laid back, and and it's 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 not what you think." And uh, and then Bud Moore, they called me and wanted me to come down there and meet with them. So I remember I was at Dover up there, and I told Billy that I said, "Okay, I'm gonna do something else next year," you know. And uh, so I went and uh, I went on a field trip one day, and I drove down to Spartanburg. <laughs> It met with Bud Moore and uh, got the tour of his shop and everything. And then I stopped back by Hendrick Motorsports. And, <laughs> and Gary, yeah, Gary, I, I imagine this is sort of night and day. Yeah, and Gary, uh, Gary DeHart was there, and uh, and Jimmy Johnson, the team manager. You know, back, you know, he, the Jimmy Johnson used to be the team manager. Yes, I was there, and uh, Jimmy with a Y Johnson. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 right, right, and uh, and Randy Dorton. Yeah. And so they were giving me the tour of the facility. And then Rick met us about halfway through the tour there and finished up the tour. And so uh, we just, you know, it was kind of like, I, okay. That was, man, that was pretty good there and pretty interesting to see what we were up against. And because uh, I had never been to nobody else's shop, I had never been to another shop, you know. Uh, and so when I was at Bud Moore's, they had a contract there, wanted me to sign this contract. And I told him, I said, man, I can't, I can't, I can't really do this because Kellogg's 
wants to go with look at going with me to wherever and he had motorcraft already you know the sponsor locked right and i said you know these folks have been really good to me so i need to see what we can figure out so i went back to uh to our shop there in thomasville at hagan's and uh so i went in the shop the next day and i walked to the office there and pete wright was our crew chief at the time <laughs> we sat down there's a couple of the guys in the office there and i we sat down and i said boys and they knew i was going down there and i said you will not believe how good we are doing with what we have <laughs> i said i mean i I'm, i said i'm yeah. feeling pretty good now about you know how we're yeah. really doing because we are not we're oh boy we we don't have near the stuff these other cats have got you know yeah. so um so as it turned out uh, a few weeks went by, and and uh, Jimmy Johnson called, met me at a steakhouse somewhere in Salisbury, I think, and and uh, we put a deal together, and uh, so I called the people at Kellogg's, and I told them, I said, hey, uh, I uh, got a deal with Hendrick, and I'm going to go there, and, and the guy said, man, that's fantastic, who... Uh, would you mind if we call them and see if we can, you know, work something out? I said, no, here's, you know, call, uh, call Jimmy. And, and so they did and, and they put a deal together. And so they were our sponsor for several years there yeah, at, at, yeah. at Hendricks. That was a pretty desolate time in Terry's career. And I'm sure that he wondered if he was ever going to be able to put things back together and win again. That would be only natural. Going so long without a victory after you have not only won races, but you've won a championship. After joining Hendrick Motorsports for the start of the 1994 season, the results weren't exactly spectacular early in the season. He did finish third in the Daytona 500, but then he was 17th at Rockingham, 9th at Richmond, 14th in Atlanta, 35th at Darlington, and 24th at Bristol. But then the team goes to North Wilkesboro. Terry gets by Rusty Wallace for the lead on lap 372, and he goes on to capture his first win in nearly five years. Well, that had to be a major relief for him, especially after going so long without winning a race when he was accustomed to doing just that, winning races. He had last won on July 30th, 1989 at Talladega. He was driving for Junior Johnson at the time. But then, I didn't remember this happening, but then he announced during his post-race press conference that day that he was leaving at the end of the year to drive a full Winston Cup schedule for his own team. You know, Rick, I don't remember that either, but I don't think it ever got off the ground. Well, the Bonnie Racing, they already had a family-owned team in place at that time, and it had fielded a car for Bobby Labonte in a handful of bush races each year in the mid to late 1980s. And then Bobby went full-time in 1990. So I'm assuming the plan was for Terry to run Winston Cup full-time in 1990 with Bobby running the full Bush Series schedule. That didn't work out. And Terry, as he talked about, wound up bouncing around a little bit before landing at Hendrick Motorsports in 1994. Terry said in your race lead, I told everyone I had a second chance at my career when I joined this team. I was going to be with a team that could win races and the championship. It feels really good to win again. 
But more important, it feels good to be with a team capable of winning. I think the last time I was with a good team was when I was with Junior. It's been a long dry spell. He's exactly right. When he moved over to Hendrick, it was a whole new beginning for Terry, which culminated in some very, very good things in the future. So when you're with a team that you think can get the job done, it certainly eases your mind and certainly takes away some of the stress that you're feeling by not winning. This race was won by Terry Labonte, but Ernie Irvin had dominated it. Ernie started from the pole, and he led three times for a total of 320 laps. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Mayfield spun in turn four to bring out a caution that started on lap 328. So to that point, on lap 328, Ernie Irvin had led all but eight laps. And that is what you call dominating. But you can dominate and not win, as we're about to find out. When Ernie pitted, he had a problem, and he rolled off pit road in fifth place. And everybody thought that he would pick up right where he left off. There were, what, 70-some-odd laps left. They thought that he would just blast his way back into the lead, and that would be that. And that would just be a little hiccup. But that just wasn't the case, and he had to settle for third place at the end of the day. Ernie said, again in your race lead, the car ran good all day, but at the end, it didn't run like it had. We had mismatched the tires. You don't know if it's the tires or if it's the air pressure or what. This one got away. Really, you never have it until it's over. We would like to run the race over, but you don't get that. On the pit stop, I just didn't have my foot on the brake and the tire rolled. That's indicative of the kind of thing that happens in racing all the time, Rick. A guy can go out there and dominate a race, and a little something, just little something happens in the pits, and it changes the characteristics of the car. And that driver can't go back to running the way he was and loses the race. It doesn't take a lot, Rick. It does not take a lot at all. There are a couple of things in your race lead that I wanted to ask you about. Uh Uh-oh. You wrote that Terry Labonte had been with team owner Billy Hagan through 1992 when he had actually driven for Billy through the 1993 season. Then at the end of the race lead, you quoted Terry as saying, if feels good to be with a team capable of winning. So you had an incorrect fact and a typo in your race lead. What do you have to say for yourself, Wade? Well, let's put it this way. Saturday night in Wilkesboro, <laughs> I was hanging out with Miller. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say this was Wilkes County. So I'm sure that there was some Junior Johnson product available And I ain't talking about the country ham either. (laughs) I ain't talking about nothing. (laughs) (laughs) There was a pretty infamous clash between Ken Schrader and Jimmy Spencer in this race. Jimmy and Kenny were fighting for second place behind Ernie Irvin on lap 208. Kenny got into Jimmy. Jimmy spun. And then, under the caution, Jimmy got into Kenny in turn four and spun him. And as a result, NASCAR parked Jimmy Spencer for five laps. 
Well, I'm not surprised that NASCAR did that because the one thing they will not tolerate, you know this as well as I do, Rick, they won't let a driver use his car to exact any kind of revenge on the track. Therefore, Jimmy got a pretty hefty penalty. Last week, the week before, we talked about an incident between Benny Parsons and Joe Milliken at Bristol. And in the end, neither one was penalized anything because neither one had a past history of acting like that. Let's just say that wasn't the case with Jimmy Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) Which is true. Kenny said in a sidebar, I was up to his door. I was almost running over the curb and he just came down. So he got turned around. The guy on the inside wins. What else can I say? To which Jimmy responded, I got my car jammed in gear and I couldn't get the thing slowed down quick enough. And I got into the back of him. I didn't mean to spin him out. That's one of those things. It's just racing. I hope he has a good finish. Now, if he had just left it there, not many people are going to buy his explanation, but still, if he had just left it there, I think it kind of would have went away a little bit quieter than what it did. But then Jimmy added, I look at it as what goes around comes around. <laughs> ah, what does that tell you? <laughs> <laughs> and somebody told Kenny about what Jimmy had said, and Kenny said, well, I better not say anything right now. <laughs> to Very his smart. credit, to his yeah. credit, he passed up commenting on that one. Kenny wound up finishing in ninth place while Jimmy was 32nd. And then, Steve, as I mentioned in the intro, I loved Deb Williams's column in this issue. The week before at Bristol, Les Richter started the Winston Cup drivers meeting off by asking a series of questions. He asked Tony Glover how many people were allowed over the wall during a pit stop. Tony said seven. He asked Bill Elliott how many parade laps were taken before the green flag. And Bill said that four sounded good to him. <laughs> Les went to Darrell Waltrip and asked what it meant when the flag man held up the one to go finger. And Daryl replied that there was one lap to go before the caution ended and the race returned to green. Finally, Les goes, Mark Martin, how many laps are there in today's race? (laughs) 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 And of course, everybody busted out laughing and Mark held up a sign that said, (laughs) this race is not 499 laps. (laughs) 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 Well, of course. Just the day before, Mark had pulled off the track under caution with a lap to go in Bristol's Bush Series race. That handed the win to David Green. And so that was Les's way of yanking Mark's chain a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And that wasn't the first time something like that's happened in the driver's meeting by any means. And as everybody was laughing in the driver's meeting, somebody said, It's a good thing he didn't do a Polish victory lap. That would have been a well of a wreck. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. And that wasn't the only driver's meeting fun that Deb wrote about. A year or so earlier, let's just say that Jeff Bodine showed up at the track with more hair than usual. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) And Doyle Ford, who was the flag man at the time, he was calling the roll. And when he got to Jeff, Jeff raised his hand. Doyle called Jeff's name again. And Jeff not only raised his hand, but he answered here. (laughs) Doyle called Jeff's name a third time. And somebody said, he's there. He's right there. And Doyle went, where? Jeff stood up and Doyle said, you're not Jeff Bodine. You just look like him. (laughs) (laughs) And then Steve, (laughs) a couple of years earlier, one of Junior Johnson's crew members got locked in a port john during practice. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim Brewer, who was in on the joke, he started calling this poor guy on the radio saying that he needed him to do something now. <laughs> and so here this poor guy is locked in the port john banging on the door, trying to get out, and everybody is standing there looking and laughing. I'll tell you what, the Porter Johns were pretty prevalent in North Wilkesboro, down in the garage area. And they were used many times for not what you might think, but for pulling jokes like this. I once saw Ricky Rudd go in Porter John, and I got me a stick, and I ran it through the, the door, you know, where <laughs> the door couples were right there, and just waited. Got a bunch of guys, and we all stood around and said, wait, see how Ricky gets out of this thing. And... Ricky started pounding on the door, sure enough, and pushing it and pushing. And the next thing I knew, it was pretty quiet. And it's like he stopped fighting the door. He's quiet and still. Then all of a sudden, boom, that door flew open, that stick went flying. <laughs> and Ricky took one look at me and I said, oh, gosh, he's going to rush me right now. But no, Ricky laughed. It's a pretty good joke. And I said, it's a pretty good way to get out of there, Ricky. I'm never doing that to you again. <laughs> well, Steve, I didn't know that. But I cannot believe that you would engage in such activity at the racetrack. I mean, you're supposed to be a professional journalist and above such things. Oh, now, wait a minute, Rick. As I recall... <laughs> There was something about a cream pie and Buckshot Jones and something <laughs> about telling him his car was illegal. Isn't that along the same line here? I have no comment. I'm pleading the fifth. You live in the glass <laughs> house. Don't you be throwing any stones. <laughs> there were features in this issue on Chuck Bound, Bill Elliott's Racing Museum in Dawsonville, and that year's Bush Series Rookie of the Year class. And Steve, listen to this. That class included Johnny Benson, Chad Chaffin, George Crenshaw, Mike Garvey, Andy Hillenberg, Mike Laws, Kevin LePage, Jeff Neal, Randy Porter, Stevie Reeves, Robbie Riser, Michael Rich, Johnny Rumley, Dennis Setzer, Kirk Shelmerdine, Johnny Smith, and Dirk Stevens. <laughs> That's almost a full racing lineup of rookies. <laughs> <laughs> 17 drivers filed for rookie of the year. And Johnny Benson came out on yeah. top with the rookie of the year honor that year in the Bush series. There was also a feature on Diane Finn, who was a teacher at Pelham elementary school in Georgia. And Diane used racing as an incentive for the reading program that she had put together 
she worked with various race teams and sponsors to get subscriptions to racing for kids, which yeah. was started by Griggs publishing, which also started Winston cup scene, grand national scene and memorabilia to give out as rewards in 1992. The first year that she did this, her students read 4,700 books mm. and her wow. top reader read 220 books. One person read 220 books. Yes. Wow. And that kid liked Ken Schrader and she wound up standing in line for two and a half hours to get Kenny's autograph on a t-shirt for this young man. And when a kid read two books, they got a checkered flag sticker on a poster that had everybody's name on it for every 10 books. They got a large racing poster. And at the end of the year, the leader in each class got a driver's t-shirt. Now, Steve, here's the kicker to this whole deal. If it had been me at that age, I would have tried to figure out a way to scam the system. I would have been reading 10 page comic books, (laughs) (laughs) but Diane was not a pushover. Each book had to be on the reader's grade level or above. They had to be at least 90 pages long. And the student had to write a one page book report on each book. There was no sneaking around with requirements like that. (laughs) So that kid that read 220 books had to do 220 book reports. He knew what was in those 220 books for sure. After that, (laughs) Steve, here is a little known fact. I think I've mentioned it here on the podcast, but after I got out of NASCAR in July of 2004, I taught high school English for three semesters. And something that I used in my classroom was the television show Freaks and Geeks. Now, I have never seen that show. Have you not? Oh, no, I haven't. You have to watch it. It only lasted 18 episodes, but it is the greatest depiction of what life was like in high school ever produced. Really? Ever produced. One of my favorite television shows of all time. It was set in the early 1980s in a Michigan high school, and it was the story of my life. No line in any television show ever has been a truer statement of my own high school career than this one. She's a cheerleader. You've seen Star Wars 27 times. Do the math. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So every Friday, I would show an episode of Freaks and Geeks, and then I would give it a writing assignment over the weekend on that episode. And I had groups in each class actually write their own original scripts for the show and then produce it. And some of those episodes were actually pretty doggone good. Well, Rick, I got to give you credit for being very original as a teacher. You might've made a good career out of that. I don't know. I found out very quickly that as a teacher, I really missed journalism. (laughs) Hi folks, this is Jeff Hammond and you're listening to the scene vault podcast.
listeners, if you could please leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes, do the same for Firestorm. Be sure to subscribe and hit the notifications bell on YouTube. Every little bit helps us preserve NASCAR history. And ultimately, that is what we are about here at the St. Bob Podcast is preserving NASCAR history. So listeners, if you can, please do that. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via social media or by email. That address is seenvault at yahoo.com. Christopher, I know you're listening. Thanks, man. Hold on. Let me see if I can get this started here. I don't want to turn this up as much. Can you hear anything? No. Okay. All right. Hold on just a second. Okay. You still can't hear anything. Let me see if I can share the screen. All right. Can you see it now? Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. Can you hear anything? No. Steve, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I can hear you. Did you hear anything that he said? No. no. Let me try one other thing. I know. Hold on.